0: Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Belglade Alliance Church. Belglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Belglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.belgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. I have a feeling for most of us, our lives can largely be described in these terms. Rhythms patterns, routines. I know that's the case for me. In fact, it's been the case for me for my entire life. I remember even as a kid, on school days, Monday through Friday, I woke up, I went to school, I came home, I did my homework, my mom made sure of that. I went outside and played with my friends, and then I came home, I ate dinner, I took it easy in the evenings, and then I went to bed. The next day, I did the same thing. The day after that, I did the same thing. Perhaps the only break from the rhythms, the patterns, and the routines were the weekends. But come Monday morning, it all began again. Now, many of us experience rhythms, patterns, routines of adulthood. Whether we show up to work each day or care for the many tasks at home, or we're in our retirement years, we still in many ways fall into the the regular, the usual. The rhythms, the patterns, and the routines of life. This is just something that we as human beings tend to do. But every once in a while, something happens that shakes up the regular. And sometimes it's bad. It's not always bad, though. Sometimes it's good. But whatever it is that causes this, it's significant enough to give us a new direction and to rally people together behind a common cause. The events of 9-11 demonstrated this in numerous ways, at least for me. As the events of the World Trade Center unfolded, uh, not only did Manhattan's first responders pull together to deal with the mayhem, but first responders from Long Island, New Jersey, and other places raced to Manhattan to be of service. Something so important realigned their priorities, and they rallied together with others in order to help sacrificing their routines and their rhythms and the things that they normally would be doing elsewhere. Even in the aftermath of 9-11, it seemed that all of America had its rhythms, patterns, and routines shaken. And in various ways, people pulled together. They pulled together physically. They pulled together mentally and emotionally. Since we all became part of an experience larger than the normal. We see these moments, these these breaks from our normal rhythms when we rally behind someone who's lost a loved one, perhaps. We pause the normal to rally together behind something important. We also do this in times of celebration. It's not only the bad times, but also in good times, times of celebration. Like when we celebrate a marriage. We take time off from work. We expend money on a new suit or dress or on a wedding gift, on transportation to the wedding. Perhaps we set aside hard feelings toward another wedding guest, or we bite our tongue about where we're seated, because there's something much more important going on. We rally together in such times behind things that are more significant than the normal. And I think that our passage for today is best understood as something akin to this. Now, as we jump in here in the book of Acts, we're not reading about super-Christians. We're reading about normal people who live normal lives, but these normal lives were shaken up by the penetrating truth that Jesus the Messiah has come, that he died on a cross to redeem them, that God raised him from the dead in glorious victory and amazing promise that one day they too will be raised. Not only do these things take place, but the apostles, those who sat at Jesus' feet, those who have been endowed with his authority, are performing miracles in their midst, testifying to what they've seen, and are leading a powerful ministry that has brought thousands of people to Christ in a very short time. And so these new Christians have had their priorities realigned. They're rallying together behind something more important than the normal. Their rhythms, their routines, and their patterns have been shaken by something far more significant. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Acts chapter 4. We're going to begin reading in verse 32. So Acts 4, starting in verse 32, says this. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. They brought the money from the sales and they put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field that he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, if I'm being honest, passages like this often cause people to feel a little uncomfortable, even before the pastor starts preaching on it. And there's several reasons for this that have come up to my attention over the years, and so let me share a couple of them with you today. First, There's the anticipation that the pastor is going to preach on giving. Now, if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that I rarely preach on giving. In fact, the truth of the matter is I probably ought to preach more on the topic as a matter of discipleship. But the truth of the matter is I'm an expository preacher. I don't often pick topics to preach. If I preach on something, it's because that's what the biblical text that we're reading is dealing with. And if that's the case, I will always choose faithfulness to God's word over the comfort level of our members and myself. So to the extent that our passage addresses how people gave in biblical times and perhaps provides instruction or example for how we should give in our time, may we be found obedient to the Lord in this matter. Second, people reading such passages, uh, they often worry that it promotes some kind of Christian socialism. After all, they reason we see people with means supporting those who don't, so that no one has need. Well, because I've received these types of questions and concerns from our members over the years, I think it's important that we address this up front today. Now, it's only natural in our context to have such concerns. Consider what many of us have lived through. During the Cold War, there was a distinct awareness of the dangers of the Communist Soviet Union and their ideologies, Many in our community have experienced the impact of communism in Cuba. And even recently, we've had politicians in our own country lobbying for socialism and a vocal millennial generation imagining that this flawed ideology is America's great hope. So why wouldn't we be just a little bit cautious when we read such a passage in the Bible? However, I want to set your minds at ease here. The Bible is not promoting any form of socialism. In fact, socialism wasn't even a thing 2,000 years ago. What we see here is something akin to the examples that I gave at the start. These ordinary men and women have had their normal lives interrupted by something far more important, something far more significant, something far more urgent. It redefined their priorities. It evoked generosity that not only shocks us to read of it 2,000 years later, but would have shocked others in their own day and age as well. And as as our passage begins, I want to remind you that it picks up on the events that we just left off on the last time we were reading in Acts chapter 4. So Peter and John, after being arrested, were released by the religious leaders they were released, however, with a very stern warning, not to teach or speak any more in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, verse 21 says, after further threats, they let them go. Now remember, these are the same religious leaders who condemned Jesus to death. Peter and John and all the Christians knew the weight of these threats. These were not empty words. And so what happened? As they came back to the community of the Christians, they prayed together. They didn't pray for safety in light of these threats. Instead, they prayed for even more boldness, that they would continue to proclaim the gospel even in the face of the dangers that would ensue. And what we see in our passage is that in this moment, instead of being driven apart by the dangers that were in front of them, they rallied together instead. Verse 32 says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Now listen, our possessions have a lot of importance, don't they? They have functional importance. We use our possessions for various ends. They have sentimental importance. Perhaps or the possessions that we have came from our parents or our grandparents and even beyond that in some cases. People. Uh, not only that, but they provide some kind of financial security, right? Our money, our house, the things that we own, they provide some kind of safety net for us financially. And the same would have been true in first century Israel. People had homes that they've been in or their families have been in for many generations, perhaps even centuries. People had resources that uh, they needed that in order to provide financial security for their family, for their extended family, and even at times for their community. These things are important. But what we see here in our passage is that despite how important those things are, there's something significantly more important, something worth sacrificing those other important things for. And so to claim that this was some form of Christian socialism would be to detract from the significant thing that's taking place here. The apostles were not requiring people with possessions to sell their possessions. People were doing it willingly, voluntarily. More appropriately, they wanted to do it in support of the mission of Jesus Christ and also to support the community of the church. They recognized that what they owned didn't really belong to them, but to God. And so they offered it back to him that his purposes might be accomplished. And we see two specific purposes mentioned in our passage today. As we continue reading in verses 33 to 35, I hope these become very quickly evident to you. It says, With great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time those who owed land or houses sold them brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So what are the two purposes of God that everyone rallied behind? The spread of the gospel and the care of those in need among God's people. If you remember, the apostles were warned to stop preaching in the name of Jesus or else. And so the church prayed, not for safety, but for boldness, to keep doing what Jesus had commanded them to do. And what do we see here in these verses? The apostles continuing to testify that Jesus was the risen Messiah. And so this was not something independent from the rest of the church, something that only the apostles did, but rather it was something that the entire church rallied behind and supported them in. It was something that the people gave their resources toward, that the gospel would continue to advance throughout the world. It was the most important thing, far above the normal that they had been so long accustomed to. The spread of the gospel was the first purpose of God that the Christians rallied behind. And the other one we see in our text is the care of those in need among God's people. In fact, this is the bulk of the emphasis of our passage today. I'll give you a story from my own life. Several years ago, my father got himself into a financial bind, one that he couldn't get himself out of. And I was with my grandfather, my dad's dad, when my father called him, telling him what was going on. I watched my grandfather on the phone as my dad recounted his financial woes. And all the while, my grandfather's face got more and more serious, more and more concerned. His son was in trouble. When my my grandfather got off the phone with my dad, he told me, let's go. We jumped in the car, we drove to the bank, and to make a long story short, my grandfather took jewelry that had been his family for generations, pieces that were worth a good amount of money. He took them out of his safety deposit box. He sold them and used the money to help my father out of his financial situation. Now, if my grandfather had reservations about his decision, you couldn't tell by his actions. If he was frustrated by what he had to do, he never voiced such things to another soul. He loved my father so much that despite the personal cost, he was willing to do whatever had to be done to help my father through his financial situation. You know, there are probably several people here today who've had similar experiences either in their lives or they've witnessed that in their families. But have you ever loved someone outside of your family this much? that you would unhesitatingly sell your possessions to help them out in their time of need. This is the type of love that we see amongst the earliest Christians. In fact, it wasn't even just that it wasn't their family, just another brother or sister in Christ, right? But it wasn't even a specific person with a specific need that they were aware of, and therefore they gave out of a specific decision to give to that need. No, people were selling their possessions and giving the money to the apostles because they knew that there were needs and that there were going to be even more needs. Whoever it was, whatever the situation, they trusted that the apostles would use those funds to care for those in need among the Christians. And the text says there were no needy persons among them because they gave so generously that all the needs were taken care of among the early Christians. And as we'll see later on in the book of Acts, as persecution breaks out against the church, more and more Christians began to be in need. Some were even driven from their homes and fled to other parts of the Roman Empire in order to escape the persecution that was coming. People who worked hard their entire lives, they did everything right, lost everything in a moment. And the brothers and sisters in Christ cared for those who were in need. Even the Apostle Paul took up an offering among the churches that he visited and brought those funds back to those in need in Jerusalem. You know, it doesn't take long to recognize that 2,000 years of history has created some disconnects between the way in which the earliest church operated and the way that the church operates today. And I'm not just talking about our church, I'm talking about the church at large and in general here in the United States. If we're being honest to it didn't even take one generation for some of this to start falling apart, even among the earliest Christians. In fact, in the epistle of James, James addresses some of these issues. For instance, in James 1.27, he writes, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And by saying this, he's implying that this is not what's being done among the Christians that he's writing to. In the very next chapter, he accuses them of showing favoritism to the rich, all the while neglecting the poor. Yet even though, like anything else, Christians do fail at times, the expectation is still to strive for obedience to God. And so we see the constant reminder to remember the poor throughout the New Testament. For instance, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he says this in 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4, he says, Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. And so here Paul's providing the Corinthians a very practical plan of giving for the needy Christians in Jerusalem. Paul also recounts to the churches in Galatia the instruction that was given to him by the other apostles. We see this in Galatians 2, verses 9 through 10. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they go to the circumcised, that is the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. So this wasn't just Paul's pet project. It wasn't just that he particularly had an interest in helping the poor. But we see that this was a priority even among the other apostles. And they were encouraging one another to continue to raise money to support the poor Christians. And so as we consider our context, 2022 in Belgrade, these things we read about still represent God's will for his church, his will for his people. The proclamation of the gospel is still the most important thing. And so is caring for the brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about it. If our foot is wounded, we care for it, right? Because it's a part of us. And so it is with the body of Christ. There's no such thing as, well, that's your problem. We're one body in Christ, and so we have to care for one another. In case you didn't know, we do have ways uh, to help you to give toward these two important ends, the furthering of the gospel and the care of the body of Christ. And so to give to the furthering of the gospel... Your offering envelopes and the seat backs in front of you are designed to help you aim your giving. So giving to where you see Jerusalem, that's our general fund, that keeps the ministry of this church going. Whether it's paying the staff or replacing the roof of the building or keeping the lights on or funding the various ministry programs that go on here, ministry happens because of the ongoing faithful and generous support of our brothers and sisters in Christ here. Our offering envelopes are designed to even help you to give beyond your commitment to the church by giving to the various missions emphases that we truly see as extensions of the church here. And so if you're not currently giving, I'd ask that you prayerfully consider stepping out in obedience in this area. Get involved in the mission. Allow the most important thing to challenge the normal in your own life and rally together with us in the spread of the gospel. Can you imagine if we all gave what the Bible has prescribed for giving? Can you imagine if all of us gave 10% of our income off the top and then above and beyond that towards special needs? We wouldn't stockpile the money. The pastor wouldn't get a raise. What would happen is that more ministry would take place. Imagine if we could once again hire a family pastor. Imagine if we could fund a new outreach program that we're not even dreaming of yet because it's well beyond our means at the current moment. Now to give to the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ, We have ways for you to do that as well. On the first Sunday of every month, we take up a special benevolence offering at the door on your way out. And that money is set aside for people in our church family who have financial needs. It's been used to provide crisis counseling for people who couldn't afford it. It's been used to provide food when one of our members was going through a difficult time. And so you could always give uh, to that fund on the first Sunday of the month. Uh, You could also give at any time by writing benevolence on the offering envelope and putting it in the plate. And if you can't spell benevolence, like I can't spell benevolence, you could just write for the needy and we'll make sure it gets where it needs to go. Friends, it's common to fall into rhythms, patterns, and routines in life. This is just something that we do. But something amazing has happened. Jesus has come. He's redeemed us by his blood. And that ought to inform our priorities It's something worth rallying together around. All that we have is from the Lord. It belongs to him. And so together, let's aim it at the things that are important to him.